another four minutes of threads episode for you today and we're starting at the 52nd minute the last episode uh, took us through an awful fiery montage of ruined Sheffield image after image of horror an old man dragging himself across the rubble still with his flat cap on though the famous cat writhing and twisting in the heat. We saw a blackened hand clawing at the air, trying to free itself from a pile of debris. The stream of images really was relentless. And we know that the director, Mick Jackson, has said that we lacked the language, you know, us ordinary people, we lacked the language with which to discuss nuclear war. How can we even get near it with uh, plain, ordinary, everyday words. It's beyond that. So he reached for powerful imagery instead, and that gave us a kind of visual language to understand and discuss nuclear war. And this segment of the film is uh, one of his most prominent streams of awful, haunting imagery. Well, in the last episode, the last Four Minutes of Threads episode, Um, As I was reaching the end of the four minutes, I was getting almost weary, horrified, and I was looking at the timer on the screen and (laughs) desperate for the allotted four minutes to be up so I could just step away from it, because it is a bit of an onslaught. But now, in this episode, we are straight back into it, because if we drop in at the 52nd minute, where today's episode starts... We still have some of that dreadful montage to endure. The first thing we see at 52 minutes is a a hand protruding from the rubble. It is charred and totally still. The only movement in the image comes from the flames which are dancing and leaping on each of the hand's blackened fingertips. Now, we saw images of hands uh, previously, but this one in this sequence is different. This one, and if I remember correctly, Mick Jackson refers to this in my interview with him, which you'll find, of course, in the podcast archive. I believe he refers to it because it was directly influenced by Hiroshima. There's a book, um, I have it somewhere in this flat, I just can't find it, as usual, which contains paintings by Hiroshima survivors. Paintings which recreate what they saw on the ground on 6th of August, 1945. And one of the paintings is the very stark image of a hand, an outstretched hand spread out like a starfish, with blue flames burning on each fingertip. I believe I read that the flame burned blue because of the fat in human skin. And that, uh, I believe, is what Mick Jackson was uh, referencing or was inspired by with this image, the hand with the burning, uh, flaming fingertips. That image of the burned hand reminds me of a few lines from the Sylvia Plath poem, Elm. I have suffered the atrocity of sunsets. Scorched to the root, my red filaments burn and stand, A hand of wires. Now I break up in pieces which fly about like clubs. A wind of such violence will tolerate no bystanding. 
I must shriek. So in threads we endure a few more seconds and then that terrible procession of images is over. For now at least. We have a similar procession to endure later in the film when Ruth uh, leaves the Beckett home and goes on that infamous walk through the ruins of Sheffield. But for now, the screen goes black and we get our familiar blue text popping up on screen, this time telling us that fallout is imminent. A reminder, I suppose, that the worst is yet to come. Those black and leathery corpses who died in the blasts, they had a a relatively quick and merciful death compared to a slow death from radiation sickness. Remember Nikita Khrushchev's warning that the survivors will envy the dead. The blue text on screen also tells us that firefighting and rescue attempts unlikely. Now of course they're unlikely. (laughs) More than that, they're impossible. Forget about it. No help is coming to Sheffield. Sheffield has been nuked. It is ground zero. Nothing is getting in there. Not just because of rubble making the roads impassable, but because of the levels of fallout. We've discussed in previous episodes, particularly ones about the NHS, how um, emergency workers, particularly doctors and nurses who require obviously years and years of training and so can't be quickly replaced, they would not be wasted or squandered or lost by just throwing them, if they were willing to go, into an area of high fallout. They will be kept back and they will be kept under cover until it's safe to emerge. So no, Help is not coming to Sheffield. It is not unlikely, it's impossible. But using the word unlikely, well, isn't that the language of civil defence? The pretense, the help could still be on the way. Someone, somewhere will be jumping into uniform and revving up the engine and blasting through the rubble to save you. And the word unlikely there, it's, it's just so forlorn. Like... Recalling a lost lover or a long-gone youth. Oh yes, those times, they might come again, but it's unlikely. Already, with that forlorn word, unlikely, we're already pining for the world and the civilization and security and the efficiency and the capability that we've lost. A harsher word there would have snuffed out any sense of Regret or loss. You know, if it was rescue attempts impossible, forbidden, futile, unworkable, restricted. That gives a different tone. But none of those words have the lament that unlikely does. Another notable thing here is that the text now runs across the screen in silence. Previously, it came with a a very harsh, clattering teletype sound effect. Suggesting, of course, action, but now it patters across the screen in silence. This is the start, then, of the film's lapsing into silence, its decline into the the snuffing out of civilization. The text is given to us in silence, and increasingly the characters are in silence. Many of our characters die, of course, vanish, disappear, 
those who remain, they don't have the energy or vigour to howl or stamp and scream at their horrible predicament. And of course, the next generation who are born, they, they hardly possess language at all. But of course, we'll come to all of that later. But yes, this is the start of the film's slide into relative silence. Because nuclear war, of course, doesn't just kill a lot of people and break apart a lot of buildings. It also snuffs out culture and civilization. So we're back in the bunker below Sheffield Town Hall and its electricity has been knocked out. Knocked out, of course, by the attack. And so they are fumbling and stumbling and coughing in the dark as they try to hook up generators and get the lights going again. And when they finally blink into life, all I can imagine is the absolutely thumping headaches they're all about to get. Not only are the lights uh, those ugly fluorescent strips, but the, the bunker is now murky and smoky and dusty. No fresh air will ever reach them, ever again. Every breath they take from now until death will be flavoured with smoke and dust, bleary, miserable air, smoke in the throat and grainy dust in the eyes. Added to that, a significant dollop of stress. I can't imagine there is a paracetamol tablet strong enough to shift the headaches they're all about to be plagued with. And if the smell of the smoke and the dust is going to provoke a bit of a headache, they're about to be hit with an even worse stink. As they all scatter and stumble about, hooking up the generators and yakking about aerials and connections, a few of them over in the corner quietly attend to their colleague, who was, of course, badly injured by a falling beam when the first blast hit. Can we improvise an aerial? Oh, well, we'll try. We've got to do something quick. Some the okay. well, Get out for first aid kit! Yeah. It's on this shelf at the back! It's all blocked out here. I can't shift the thing. How is it? I've got to find this first aid kit. Forget the first aid kit. Bring me something to cover him up with. Of course, uh, larger bunkers, purpose-built ones, would have body bags in place. Um, we've heard of that with American government bunkers. If you have a few thousand people in a bunker for 30 days during the most horrific war that's ever taken place, you can assume that maybe one or two will uh, will need to be disposed of. And so body bags would have been uh, provided for that purpose. But this, of course, isn't a huge purpose-built properly equipped bunker, it's a pokey little basement beneath the town hall. So there are no body bags, instead they wrap him in a bin bag. And I imagine he will be, or his his corpse will be propped up in a cupboard or tucked under a desk or maybe placed in the corridor outside the main door. And that's not really going to stop the smell when things start to get nasty. Back above ground uh, in the next scene, we're back into the Sheffield Inferno. A firestorm is raging above ground and we are at the Kemp household. Over the roar of the flames, we hear a woman crying and yes, it's poor Mrs Kemp. 
she and her husband are slumped against the wall inside their pathetic little inner refuge, which Mr Kemp built, of course, uh, following the Protect and Survive advice. So they're huddled beneath the propped-up kitchen doors and the mattress and the bags of clothing. The idea there, of course, is to create layers and layers and layers propped on top of your kitchen door to protect you from fallout and, I suppose, yes, to protect you from any falling debris. But that's all futile here, of course, because the Kemp's house is on fire. They are huddled together in an orange, smoky glow and they are coughing and they are spluttering and they are sobbing whilst the flames crackle around them. And in that tiny inner refuge, dear, dear Mr Kemp is still trying to look after his family or what is left of his family. By this point, yes, they're all gone. Jimmy's gone, Alison's gone and Michael is buried under some bricks outside. So he only has his wife left and he, even though it's futile, again, the word futility in this context, even though it's futile, he tries to help her, to comfort her. He he tries to dab at her wounds and burns with a handkerchief. He tries to dab at her hand and then at her chin, but this just makes her cry out in pain. So even though it's useless, even though it's actually causing more discomfort, he still feels the need to do something because poor Mr Kemp, as we've discussed before, worked um, in manual labour in Sheffield. So a busy man, a practical man, a man who worked with his hands. He was made redundant and that was all taken away from him. And then at the very last minute, he's able to be practical and useful again by assembling this shelter for his family. And then that's taken away from him. He cannot catch a break. And here he is, still trying, still trying to work with his hands. Let me help you, let me dab at you, let me clean you. It's useless, it's not doing anything, it's only hurting Mrs Kemp. But the man, bless his heart, still has to try. There's nothing he can do anymore to fulfil that traditional role of protector Nothing he can do. His children are dead. He can't protect them. And here's his wife lying next to him with half of her face burnt. And there's nothing he can do. The efforts he does make just result in further pain. Now, speaking of Mrs Kemp's burns, if you listen to my interview with uh, with Risa May, the actress who played Mrs Kemp, which again you'll find in the podcast archive, she talked about the, the burns makeup that she had during Threads. And she says, I believe it was um, mainly made with tomato sauce and Rice Krispies. I think she said in the interview that most of her Burns makeup was edible. (laughs) So I do recommend that if you haven't heard the Risa May um, interview. So that's some advice for some uh, men who want to be useful in the event of nuclear attack. Don't try and dab at your wife's Rice Krispies. We then move to the Beckett's household. Obviously, that's Ruth's household, the middle-class household. And like the Sheffield bunker scene, this too begins in darkness. We only hear Mr Beckett ask, Everybody all right? And they are doing relatively all right, compared to the poor Kemp's, who've lost all their children. Mrs Kemp is in agony. 
Everyone in the Beckett uh, basement is uh, physically well, physically safe for now. And they have got, of course, the protection of their big, massive Victorian villa with its uh, roomy basement. No pokey-bee terrace house for them. No need to build an inner core or refuge with kitchen doors. They can all seek refuge underground in their big uh, basement. Mr Beckett switches on a torch and uh, one by one he picks everyone out in the gloom of the basement. There's his poor old mother, um, newly turfed out of hospital, of course, as everyone else was. We've discussed that previously, the clearing of the hospitals that would occur. So she's already frail and ill, um, and she has her hands clutched to her mouth. So either she's trying to smother tears or trying to hold in panic. She's of the age, of course, to have lived through the Blitz and to remember bombing raids of far greater duration than this one, which was probably over in minutes. But um, unlike the elderly couple in When the Wind Blows, there's surely no misapprehension here in her mind about what has happened. No fond remembrance of the Blitz and no naive belief that this attack will be just like the war. No, everyone in this basement is terrified. And they're all showing it in different ways. The old lady, uh, hands clutched to her mouth, is an obvious terror. The torch moves over to Ruth. Uh, she is wrapped in a blanket and she's hunched over and sobbing. She's absolutely breaking her heart, crying. And then we turn to Mrs Beckett, Ruth's mother, who is quiet and calm. Now, she's always been quiet and calm throughout the whole uh, build-up to the nuclear attack. She was actually annoyingly quiet and calm. Uh, She gave the impression that she was smugly middle-class, safe and secure and cosseted, a life where everything was always neat and predictable and tidy and prettified. And so no filthy war could come into her life. Well, now she is equally quiet and unruffled, but no longer through ignorance, of course. It's now, I assume, her own panic reaction, which is to sit there in some kind of stunned silence. She tries to um, occupy herself by trying to click her broken lens back into her glasses And again, that matches with what we've seen of her all throughout the film. She's always busy. She's always uh, knitting or making tea or always, like Mrs Kemp too, always always moving, always in action, always active. Until Mr Beckett reaches across and he just touches her hand as in, just leave it, dear, There's, there's no point. Okay, at this point in the film, another blast wave hits. We're down in the Sheffield Town Hall bunker again, and everyone exclaims in frustration, Another one! When will this end? Another one! For God's sake! This one, though, does feel like the last gasp, um, the last lashing out from your wounded, dying enemy. You know, if, if he's going down, you're going down with him. It makes the the basement shudder, the the basement of the Becker household and the town hall basement, they both shudder and quake with the blast wave. 
And this is a good reminder, of course, that a nuclear war could go on and on and on. I always imagine it, and I suppose it's presented in in the popular imagination as one whopping attack. You know, the siren, then the flash, and then the horrible unrolling of hell that comes after that. But of course, the nuclear attack could come in waves and stops and starts. There could even, of course, be attacks launched from an enemy that you've already defeated. An enemy that you have totally decapitated. I'm thinking, of course, of the so-called dead hand system, said to have been in place in the Soviet Union. I'll read you an extract here from a book about that called The Dead Hand by David E. Hoffman. Okay, um, I quote here from page 152. Uh, A totally automated, computer-driven, retaliatory system known as the Dead Hand. It would still function if all the leaders and all the regular command system were destroyed. Computers would memorise the early warning and nuclear attack data, weigh out the onslaught, and then order the retaliation without human control. The system would turn over the fate of mankind to computers. Now, the book says that uh, details of the so-called dead hand, the rumoured computerised system, remain very sketchy, but um, as far as we know, the military rejected the idea of, quote, the military rejected the idea of launching without one last human firewall. So the idea was certainly there, but they didn't take that final step of handing our fate over to computers. But what they did have was a a system called Perimeter, which would ensure that nuclear retaliation could still be launched by the Soviet Union, even if you had killed uh, whoever it would be, Brezhnev, Chernenko, etc., and all his uh, cronies in the Kremlin. The perimeter system allowed the decision to be the decision to launch and retaliate to be deferred and delayed and passed on to surviving Soviet uh, commanders. A quote here from the book: "The immense burden was shifted to a few duty officers who might still be alive in a concrete bunker. They would face the big decision about destroying what remained of the planet. So get the Soviet leaders, get everyone in the Kremlin." and there's still going to be someone in a concrete bunker in the huge expanse of the Soviet Union who could be capable of launching everything right back at you. So down in the bunker below Sheffield Town Hall, which is looking in a bit of a mess after the subsequent blast wave, wires and light fittings dangling from the ceiling and a film of dust everywhere, The staff are desperately trying to communicate with the outside world. Um, The radio they use crackles into life, but the voice they hear has to fight through waves of static. As the bunker staff yell down the radio about possible rescue attempts, over in the corner of the bunker, the doctor and his colleague are wrapping their dead co-worker up in two bin bags. The staff get through to the police on the radio and when they ask about rescue, they ask the police what their radiac reading is and they say it's 100. The bunker staff say that's too high. 
That's too high. What is your radiac reading? What about the different I repeat, what is your radiac reading? Over. Hundred. It's too high. You've got to get your man undercover. Can you get us? Can you get us? Of course, this is why rescue won't be attempted for the staff who are buried below the rubble in the bunker. Of course, Sheffield Town Hall above them has collapsed on top of them. They will need to be rescued to be dug out. But with the police saying their radiac reading is 100, it's simply too high. So even if they had all the tools and all the kit ready and ready to go, you cannot venture out because your policemen and women will quickly acquire their allocated safe radiation dose. They have to stay undercover or they too will be lost. Now this is a very noisy scene, especially when compared to the the desolation and despair and almost complete lack of dialogue in the Kemp and the Beckett shelters. Down here, everything is chaos and crackle and static and the staff are all shouting over one another, trying to be heard. It shows how quickly and how easily order is breaking down in the bunker. We're only about an hour after the nuclear attack and already there is chaos. No one's respecting anyone else's boundaries. No one is sticking to their task. Everyone's trying to pile in to shout on the radio, to be heard, to ask their own questions. We hear the bunker staff uh, shouting down the radio and asking about conditions in Stocksbridge and Hillsborough. I believe they're speaking to the, the fire brigade at this point and they say there's been no communication from Hillsborough. Well, we know already that Hillsborough has been annihilated. We know that because the Kemps live in Hillsborough. And we know that because the milk float, which bumbled into the street every morning, was from the Hillsborough Dairy. So we know the Hillsborough has been wiped out. Stocksbridge, however, is much further out. Um, Google Maps tells me it's 10 miles away from Sheffield Town Hall. So even though uh, Stocksbridge is relatively far out from the from Ground Zero, the bunker staff are horrified to hear from the firemen that Stocksbridge has survived has structural damage and windows have been blown out. And they find that incredible. Even as far away as Stocksbridge, the windows are broken. This is their first realisation of how bad things are up there. Now, of course, they've got statistics. You know, they've been plotting things on a map and they've been making their wee calculations, but it's things like hearing that the windows are gone as far out as Stocksbridge. That's what's really getting to them and starts to make them realise and despair. Numbers on a chart or circles on a map aren't the same as knowing that in that lovely town, on the outskirts, all the windows have been blown out. As Mick Jackson said, it's images that help us understand nuclear war. The stats on the charts and maps are not as powerful as the image in their head of Stocksbridge? The windows, the windows have been blown out, out in bloody Stocksbridge. Are you kidding me? Okay, I hope you enjoyed our four minutes of threads there. And I'm sorry there's been no podcast in the past fortnight, but I've not been feeling too well. Uh, definitely much better uh, yesterday and today. So thank you for your patience waiting for this episode. I hope it was worth it. And I've got three new patrons to say hello to. Hello and thank you to John Lane. Bernie Duffy and Faye Woolnuff for joining my Patreon. 
If you want to support the podcast, please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo and you get access to lots of different benefits if you join, one of which is uh, extra podcast episodes. And there are four episodes currently in the archive waiting to be downloaded by any new patrons. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook under Nuclear Britain or my website, juliemcdowell.com. And thank you all for listening. And I'll be back next week.